Hello, my friends. This is the Anthology of Heroes podcast, and you've tuned into the story of Ahmad Shah Durrani, the father of Afghanistan. If perhaps you think that sounds a bit familiar and you're a long-time listener, well, you're not wrong. This is indeed a re-recording of an original episode with a few tweaks. I decided to re-record it because the earlier episode was a victim of a crappy microphone and equally crappy audio editing. Common pitfalls for the early days of a podcast. So if you've heard that already, I forgive you for tuning out. With that said and done, in part one of the episode, we covered the fall of Nader Shah, a brilliant Persian commander who Ahmad Shah Durrani had sworn allegiance to. We covered the first few rebellions and plots against Ahmad Shah's new Afghan empire. We walked through a few of his first campaigns, including those against the grandson of old Nader Shah and those against the decaying Mughal empire. We left our friend Ahmad Shah just after his total sacking of the Mughal capital. Ahmed Shah and his army are marching out of Delhi with all the goodies they can carry. And go. Whatever was left of the Mughal Empire would have been easy for Ahmed Shah to annex. So leaving it as it was was very much his own decision. It would have been too difficult to hold and govern it from Afghanistan. He would have had to move his capital, sidelining his own Afghan people and likely inciting a rebellion. Plus, by keeping the Mughal power structure and tying his family to it, Ahmad Shah Durrani was legitimizing his own rule by proxy. A shrewd political move which gives insight that he was thinking long-term at this stage. Watching the sacking unfold from the south were the Marathis and the Jats. Though they knew the Mughal Empire was weak, the destruction of Delhi had opened their eyes to just how weak they were, and they quickly cranked up the pressure, holding back taxes and ignoring the Mughal Emperor entirely. As a reminder, these guys were the two most vocal Indian minorities jostling for independence. Both of these groups span the western part of India, the Jats more northern and the Marathis more central. The Grand Mughal, who was now subjugated to the Durranis, requested their aid in suppressing these two groups. And the suppression was brutal and thorough, reminiscent of the times of Genghis Khan 500 years ago. Uh, I mean, we're talking limbs severed for bounty payments, right? Women, children, the elderly, no one was spared. The, the countryside was just completely devastated. The Jats in particular copped it especially hard as their ruler refused continually to accept subjugation of any kind. Hindu holy places were sought out deliberately. Statues and paintings of their gods were hacked to pieces and kicked around in the street. Cows, which are considered sacred in Hinduism, were decapitated and strewn around the corpses of headless Hindu bodies. Eventually, this trail of carnage takes the Afghans to the small town of Gokul, a fairly ordinary town except for the belief that Krishna, one of the main gods of Hinduism, spent his childhood there. When the Durrani army arrived, they found at the gate 4,000 monks, completely naked and covered in ash, blocking the way. Thinking they could make mincemeat out of these holy men, the army attacked and was met with brutal and stubborn resistance, the monks fighting back with everything they had, refusing to let the invaders desecrate the town. Eventually, the army suffered such huge losses that they actually just left. I mean, the town was no strategic value to them anyway. After the Marathi cities were pillaged, the army headed south to the region controlled by the Jats. Now, we need to introduce a minor character here. This guy's name was Suraj Mal, and he was the closest thing the Jats had to a leader. He was a real-life hero to his people, and many of his contemporaries referred to him as the Jat Odysseus, Odysseus being the mythical Greek king who fought for independence. And the reputation was well-deserved. 
Even before the Durrani army was on the scene, Suraj's political acumen had pried more and more privileges from the ailing Mughal state. In the past, he had sacked Delhi. Hell, he'd even pulled the silver doors off the Taj Mahal and dragged them home. But overall, he was a man of foresight and single-mindedness. He was a poet, a scholar, and a military reformer, but his main goal was the full independence of his people, and this was never far from his mind. With his portly body, brightly coloured clothing, and insane mutton-chop moustaches, there was no missing Suraj Mal. Ahmed Shah got his first taste of real resistance on the Indian subcontinent when he besieged Suraj's capital, which had only recently been buffed up with new walls, new guns, and new grain stores. Responding to a request to surrender, Suraj sent back this dramatic response, quote, If by divine decree, which is not known to anyone, the affair, that is the battle, takes a different turn, what will it lead to? All the power and preponderance brought about your majesty's gallant soldiers during a period of 11 years will vanish in a moment. As for myself, I have already crossed 50 of the stages of life and do not know anything about the remaining. There shall be no greater blessing than that I should drink the draught of martyrdom. End quote. Ahmad Shah Durrani, his army worn out from constant campaigning and stricken with a cholera epidemic, reluctantly agreed and left for Afghanistan. It was starting to become a bit clearer to the Afghan why the Mughal Empire had been in such a state of decay. Trying to keep these ethnic groups down was no picnic. Heading home, the Afghan army were again harried by Sikh ambushes, continually making off with much of the loot of the campaign. Furious, Prince Tamar, that is, the son of Ahmad Shah, who was lately taking a more active role in the management of the empire, took a detachment of the main force and pillaged the Sikh countryside in a similar manner to the previous campaigns against the Marathis and the Jats. Amritsar, the Sikh capital, was razed to the ground, its beautiful golden temples sacked, and the sacred pools emptied and filled with decapitated cows and sprinkled with cow blood. The attack was designed to shock and cow the Sikhs, but they'd been through worse than this in the past, and this just strengthened their resolve. Babadeep Singh, a 75-year-old Sikh devotee, had been in a scholarly retreat. He heard about the devastation of Amritsar, and out of guilt he was not there. He vowed to avenge the fallen. And so this guy, 75 years old, roused 500 Sikh warriors and began the march to Amritsar, vowing, May my head fall at Dabar Sahib, that's the largest temple at Amritsar. Predictably, the squad of Sikhs met fierce resistance from the occupying Afghans, but Baba Deep Singh, swinging around a 15-kilogram sword, fought on. Receiving a mortal neck wound and near death, he was reminded by a fellow Sikh of his vow to reach the temple. And so on he fought, stemming a wound with his left hand and cleaving a path through the men with his right. According to a Sikh legend, his head was actually cleaved off completely, but he was so dedicated to his vows, he just carried his head in his left hand and kept swinging with his right until he reached the temple. Whatever the case, the site of his martyrdom is visited regularly by Sikhs to this day. On our website, you can see a picture of him fighting on, head held in his own hand, and the massive sword that he carried with him. We've also got a picture of Amritsar and its famous sacred pools. After desecrating the holy sites, the Durranis marched home thinking the Sikhs had now been subjugated. But like we said before, the Sikhs had not survived under Mughal oppression only to be beaten so easily. The militant side of the Sikh religion had originally begun as a reaction to Mughal persecution. By destroying their holy city, Ahmad Shah Durrani had made an enemy for life. Now there was no chance of reconciliation. 
No sooner had the invading army left than the temples were rebuilt, the sacred pools cleaned, and the army gathered. The pattern would continue over and over throughout the rule of Ahmad Shah Durrani. The Sikhs knew the Afghans eventually had to leave. They just needed to resist them, avoid a pitch battle, and wait them out. The harshness of Jahan Khan, that's the leading commander of the Durrani forces, seems to have had some influence on Ahmad Shah Durrani's son Tamur. We haven't talked too much about the role of Tamur simply because I couldn't find all that much about him. But it's clear he was the favoured son of the numerous children Ahmad Shah had fathered and had been groomed for the throne since a pretty young age. To give some real experience, Ahmad Shah had put him in charge of Lahore. If you remember, this was the place that was prone to rebellion, and Ahmad knew his son would have a fairly rough time, but hey, that's how you get experience, right? The Sikhs agitated again and again, raiding, stealing, ambushing, generally making the region impossible to administer and tax. Tearing his hair out, Prince Tamur called for a jihad against the Sikhs. But this backfires as the indiscriminate slaughter horrifies the countryside and drives the Marathis into forming a coalition with the Sikhs. Together, the two persecuted ethnic groups start to push back the forces of Prince Tamur. The Durrani forces held the advantage in a pitched battle, but the coalition held the advantages for light skirmishes. And when Afghan prisoners were captured, they were dragged back to Amritsar and forced to clean the sacred pools that they themselves had desecrated. The coalition began to gather steam. They stormed lightly guarded forts, and many of the Afghan administration's best and brightest were taken prisoner by them. Tamil's forces were slowly being pushed back towards Afghanistan. Word of the prince's troubles reached the Durrani court quickly, but they had their own problems. Yet another pretender had risen up in the Pakistani region of the empire. The architect behind the rebellion had been a lifelong friend of Ahmad Shah Durrani, a man of influence and power among his peers. In fact, this guy was one of Ahmad Shah Durrani's first supporters during the wheat pouring ceremony almost 15 years ago. Stories of Prince Tamil's failure in the Punjab meant a few of his supporters were wondering if maybe this was the end of the Durrani Empire. And this friend of Ahmad Shah, smelling blood in the water, decided now was as good a time as ever to carve out his own kingdom, just like Ahmad Shah had done. Ahmed took this betrayal personally. He tried to win back his old friend with diplomacy, even offering him a full pardon, but it didn't work. The first attempt at stomping out the rebellion ended in failure. The newly mustered troops could not stand against the veteran forces commanded by the other man. But casualties were low, and Ahmed Shah, fully aware of the wobbly loyalty of his troops, pushed quickly for another battle. In the next battle, he ensured he was personally right up front with alongside his men. With the Pearl of Pearls standing shoulder to shoulder beside them, his troops won a decisive victory. The rebel commander and what's left of his vanguard fled. Despite the trouble he had caused, once Ahmed Shah caught up with his old friend, he forgave him. He was happy to have him back as a counsellor and kept him in his position. While this may seem overly sentimental and dangerous, the man was an able administrator with a lot of influence. By pardoning him, Ahmed Shah helped maintain the stability of the regions he controlled. It was not long after this that his loyalty was cemented by a marriage to the Durrani family. The decision to pardon him was a good one, and he maintained loyalty to the Durrani family for the rest of his life. While things were settling down in Pakistan, things in India were getting worse. The Sikhs and the Marathis had grown bolder still. Almost the entire Punjab region had now been taken back. Worse still, a pretender had murdered the Mughal emperor that Ahmad Shah Durrani had just legitimized. It seemed that many in the Mughal court were unhappy at their position as an Afghan vassal. When you want something done, you got to do it yourself. Ahmad Shah Durrani rolled up his sleeves, readied the troops, and headed into India. 
again. Jahan Khan, well, he was a skilled military commander, but didn't have the strategic foresight that Ahmad Shah Durrani did. His strategy of devastating and humiliating the enemy makes for a great victory, but the Durranis are trying to annex this region into their territory. Subjugating the local people to merciless destruction had galvanized the countryside against the Afghans. Ahmad Shah needed a way to shore up his legitimacy and restore some prestige. There was no winning the people of the countryside back, that that bridge was burnt, but what about replacing the countryside with people that do like him? So Afghan settlers were transplanted from Afghanistan and set up in Lahore. A shrewd move once again showing the longevity of Ahmad Shah Durrani's goals. With the administrative niceties kicked off, the campaign against Samarati started in earnest. There were very small to medium engagements between the two armies. Though the Marathis tended to come off worse off, it stunned the Afghans how quickly they could replace their losses. The Marathi Empire was at its height during this time, having thrown off the heavy overhead of Mughal taxation and bloated bureaucracy for fighting with high morale, talented officers, and in defense of their homeland. Ahmad Shah knew that these small little skirmishes were not going to do it. He needed something decisive and hard to knock them out for good. A large-scale battle was coming, and Ahmad Shah knew he needed allies. South of Delhi, a high-profile Mughal courtier carved a semi-autonomous territory out of the ashes of the Mughal state. His name was Shuja Uddallah, and some of the best Mughal troops still standing were loyal to him. Both Durrani and Marathi courted him for an alliance, but it was Ahmad Shah's honourable treatment of him as a fellow Muslim that sealed the alliance in their favour. The forces then marched north across the Ganges and sacked Delhi, yet again. Once one of the richest cities in the world was reduced to virtual starvation. With the alliance sealed in the blood of Delhi, there were a few more groups that needed to be accounted for prior to any large battle. You might remember the Rajputs, they were defeated way back in the first invasion of India when they were fighting for the Mughals. They had kept quiet and seemed content fortifying their own territory. Ahmed Shah had, for the first time since the invasion, maintained a cordial relationship with them. Due to their tentative position, that is, surrounded by the Marathis on virtually all sides, Ahmad Shah did not expect them to contribute troops anywhere too far from their borders, but he did expect their reports and updates on the movements of the Marathis, and he kept friendly correspondence with them from his side. This light-touch alliance seemed to work well for both parties. Siraj Mal and his Jats, though, well, they were a different story. They rejected outright any alliance with foreign invaders, Likely, if having to pick between a Hindu overlord or an Islamic one, they'd side with their faith. A force was sent to the Marathis, but apparently the arrogance of the Marathi commander, a guy named Sadashiv Bao, rubbed Suraj Mal the wrong way and they soon returned home. A tactical victory for the Durranis as it meant the Jats would remain neutral in any coming conflict. It's probably about time I introduce our final character, and thankfully for all of us, his name doesn't contain the word Ahmed or Shah. Sadashiv Bao was to the Marathis what Suraj Mal was to the Jats. He was a military commander who had spent significant time observing the wars of the British and the Portuguese, and through his leadership, the Marathis had jumped centuries ahead in military tactics. Ornate rituals in swordsmanship and personal combat were pushed out of the military curriculum, and in their place came formation drills and proper maintenance of muskets. The Marathis were at the top of their game thanks to this guy. Other small estates were also conscripted into the Durrani army. Ahmed Shah knew when to smile, shake hands, keep quiet, or praise Allah. Sadashiv Bao, on the other hand, was not as worldly. He knew the Marathi customs, sure, but he did tend to put his foot in his mouth a little when meeting foreign dignitaries. 
Overall, Ahmad Shah had much more success finding allies, be they Islamic or Hindu. Briefly, the Durranis and the Marathis both met at the negotiating table but were unable to come to terms. Meanwhile, new recruits from ambitious young Hindus were rolling in daily and the Afghan army was overextending itself in a foreign land. The Marathis well and truly held the advantage. This led the Marathis to feel overconfident in their abilities, so much so that they began to discuss what they would do with the Mughal Empire. Should they annex it completely? Would Sadashiv Bao become the new Grand Mughal? In the end, to preserve whatever little stability the Mughal Empire still carried, they crowned the puppet emperor, Shah Alam II. A joke circulated that the empire of Shah Alam is from Delhi to Palam, Palam being a suburb in Delhi. But first, a quick message from one of our friends of the show. I'm Mark Pimenta, the host of the Warlords of History podcast, focused on intriguing warriors and leaders, ancient and medieval, that were titans during their respective ages, where, over several episodes, we'll review each of their lifetimes and actions. We'll cover what they did, how they did it, and finally, what their legacy was beyond their demise. If any of this interests you, join me as we dive into each of their lifetimes, their worlds, in the Warlords of History podcast. With each side having mustered everything they could and secured all the allies they could, the stage had been set for a very large military engagement, perhaps the largest in the 18th century. It came to be known as the Third Battle of Panapat. Just for reference, in the First Battle of Panapat, a plucky young nobody named Babur had stormed onto the world stage and the Mughal Empire was born. In the Second Battle of Panapat, his grandson, The brilliant strategist history remembers as Akbar the Great solidified Mughal power with a flawless victory. And now, in the Third Battle of Panapat, the Mughal emperor cowered behind his throne, hoping the pension he was granted by his overlord would be enough to feed his entourage. The location of the battle was decided when Marathi forces stormed a key Durrani garrison on the Yamuni River. Two of the Durrani's highest officers were taken by surprise and killed. Ahmad Shah Durrani fasted for two days before making the decision to undertake a risky river crossing. Seasonal floods had swelled the river, making it more dangerous than even usual. The decision proved right, though, and the successful crossing surprised Sudashev Bao, whose army was facing the complete wrong direction and had to turn and face the Durrani host. The Durrani army slowly began encircling the Marathi forces, sending scouts and raiding parties to cut off all their supply lines and the Marathis felt a pinch of this immediately. They had an obscene number of camp followers, around 200,000 people, mostly pilgrims who were heading north to Hindu holy shrines and had stuck with the army for protection. All these were mouths that had to be fed. Sudashiv Bao could do nothing but sit tight and wait for the reinforcements that were meant to be coming from the Marathi Prime Minister, who was, get this, having a wedding, which apparently couldn't wait. Securing supplies became the top priority for the Marathis as starvation set in. Every day the army grew weaker. Sadashiv Bao knew he had to give battle before things really fell apart. Hoping to get the jump on the Afghans, he wrote a letter to Shujat ud dalah remember that's the commander of the Mughal forces in the camp of Ahmed Shah, and said, quote, The last moment has now come. If anything is possible, do it immediately, or let me have a negative reply. After this, there will be no further opportunity for exchange of notes and words, end quote. If he hoped the Mughal Prime Minister's allegiance to Ahmad Shah was shaky, he was mistaken. Shujar ud dalah quickly informed Ahmad Shah of the note. The Pearl of Pearls wasted no time. 
Still wearing his sleeping robe, he sprinted from his tent, mounted his horse and gave the order for the troops to form up immediately. The Durrani forces numbered around 60,000 mostly mounted, while the Marathi army was around 45,000, a mix between mounted and infantry with about 20,000 civilian recruits. The Durranis held the numerical and quality advantage, but the Marathis had some of the finest French artillery in the world, Sadashiv Bao himself being an expert in artillery. So it was fitting that the battle started with an artillery barrage from the Marathis, hoping to soften up the elite Afghan troops in the centre. Initially, this worked, but the cannon-mounted camels of the Afghans proved more efficient, able to be moved more quickly than the heavy French artillery pieces. For one of the first times in his life, Ahmed Shah was not in the front lines. This was the largest battle he had ever commanded and trusted no one but himself to take overall command. He kept a significant number of reserves and meted them out methodically, keeping a close eye on divisions that looked to be breaking and ensuring fresh troops were always there to relieve the beleaguered ones. The usual fire and retreat the Afghans used so well proved hard for the less mobile Marathis to deal with. With the casualties mounting and their cannons being outgunned by a couple of camels with a gun stuck on top, Sadashiv Bao dismounted his elephant and personally entered the fray. As he did, a couple of Afghan prisoners spread the rumour to the Marathi troops. Hey, look, his elephant's got no one on it, he must have been killed. Looking at the unattended elephant and fearing the worst, the shaky Marathi troop morale now broke and they began to rout. The death toll was enormous for a battle of this era, possibly the most costly in the 18th century. The Afghans lost around 20,000 soldiers, while the Marathis lost around 30,000, with the camp followers copping the brunt of it at around 50,000 dead. The plunder taken was enormous. 50,000 horses, 300 elephants, 3,000 camels, 100,000 bullet carts, 300 light-medium artillery pieces, 25,000 matchlock muskets, 100,000 swords, spears and pikes. If we look back on what went wrong, Sadashiv Bao was not the diplomat Ahmad Shah Durrani was. If he had secured alliances, this story could have been very different. The local alliances that the Afghan made helped give him knowledge of the terrain. And to the Marathi Prime Minister, I shouldn't have to say this, but maybe don't arrange a wedding while your barely established empire is under the biggest threat it's ever faced. The peace treaty concluded soon after, and the terms were fair. Although the victory was decisive, the Marathis were still a strong force, and the fairly easy treaty terms reflect this. A new Mughal emperor was elevated by the Durranis, and the Marathis were forced to recognise him. They were also forced to acknowledge Durrani occupation of the Punjab region. After this, Ahmed Shah and his troops headed home. Before he left, he tried to convince the army to undertake a small campaign against the Jats, who once again refused to acknowledge him as their overlord. But the army, underpaid, tired, and worn down by bands of Sikhs roaming the countryside, would have none of it. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? 
This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Ahmed Shah arrived in Afghanistan and settled a few minor rebellions, before setting to work rebuilding his would-be capital of Khorasan. Khorasan sat at the gateway between India and Afghanistan. If there was any hope for survival of Ahmed Shah's empire, this city had to be the key to it. After many battles that was passed back and forth, it was depopulated and in bad need of repair. The Shah built a series of strong defensive walls, tower, and a tomb for himself, and many spaces left vacant for future developments. The Shah invited many prominent men of Afghan tribes to settle there, really trying to drive home this, you know, united Afghanistan vibe. Meanwhile, back in the recently won territory of the Punjab, the Sikhs returned with vengeance. Lahore, the provincial capital, fell quickly, as did many other small garrisons. The Shah's wrath this time was as bloody as could be. Crossing into India for the sixth time, the Pearl of Pearls led a colossal 50,000-strong army supplemented heavily by Uzbeks who had recently joined his ranks. Soon after crossing, their army ran into a group of around 30,000 Sikhs, made up mostly of women, children and the elderly. The Sikh tribe was caught at the worst possible time as they were mid-journey between two towns that had no fortifications whatsoever. The Sikh warriors stood strong, fighting a moving battle to defend the slow-moving baggage train until it arrived at the town of Gahal. Crushingly, the townspeople refused to admit the Sikhs, fearing probably rightly, the vengeance from Ahmed Shah. The beleaguered baggage train carried on, suffering huge casualties from both the heat and the Afghan army. Both armies eventually, exhausted, stopped to drink at a spring. Despite the personal urging of Ahmed Shah, his army refused to continue without rest. At this point, they'd been engaged in combat for over 36 hours with almost no water. What was left of the Sikhs slipped away quietly into the desert. This event became known as the Sikh Genocide of 1762, not exactly a high watermark on the morality scale for the Durrani Empire. But there was still more to come though. After, the army again marched to Amritsar and gave the recently repaired Sikh capital the same treatment they dished out earlier, mutilating cows, decapitating pilgrims, and reducing the site to rubble. According to some sources, as an explosion ripped apart one of the larger temples, a small piece of rubble about the size of a coin nicked Ahmed Shah cutting into his cheek. It was no major wound, and he likely thought nothing of it. More on this later. Characteristically, despite the destruction of their most sacred religious sites, the Sikhs' morale did not wane. Any attempt at diplomacy or talks of peace was met with violent rejection. For them, the door to that deal had swung shut long ago. Small skirmishes took place across the countryside, and the Afghans usually got the better of the Sikhs, but they did not relent no matter how many they lost. Worse still, once the Afghan army left, the Sikhs quickly took back all possessions and towns. Ahmed Shah, clearly out of ideas, calls another jihad against them. An exchange with him and one of his tribal leaders who was planning a pilgrimage to Mecca goes like this, quote, The accursed dogs, meaning the Sikhs, and lustful infidels have overrun the territories of Multan. How can you think of going to Mecca while this depraved sect is causing havoc? And he goes on to insist, quote, Come, so that we may destroy this faithless sect and enslave their women and children. End quote. Despite the ferocious and merciless destruction of the Sikhs and their temples, they refused to be cowed. 
Once their troop numbers fell too low for a pitched battle, they resorted to guerrilla attacks, which slowly began to sap the morale of the Durrani army. After eight invasions of India, enough was enough. Nothing was official, but this marked the end of Afghan incursion into the Punjab. With the reluctant withdrawal, Ahmad Shah spent his time strengthening rule over the area west of the Indus River. Subjugating a minor rebellion, he was gifted the Kurga Sharifa, a sacred shirt said to be worn by the Prophet himself. This was treasured by Ahmad Shah, and he built a very large shrine in Khorasan to house it, where it remains to this very day. I wish I could say we've got a picture of this on our website, but like Ethiopia with the Holy Grail, they don't show it to the public, except in very rare circumstances, so we'll have to take their word for it. Not long after, Nader Shah's grandson, Sharok, seemingly forgetting the lenience showed to him, made another attempt at independence. The rebellion was quickly stomped out by Ahmad Shah. Once again, he honoured his promise to Nader. Sharok was spared and returned to his previous position. Sadly though, other conquerors would not be so kind. Not long after, Sharok was brutally tortured to death. His torturer convinced himself that Sharok had squirreled away a trove of treasure from his grandfather. He had his head shaved, paste applied to it, and a jug of molten lead poured over him. At 48 years old, the Pearl of Pearl's health was beginning to fail. He may have been suffering from diabetes or gout, but more noticeable was the wound he had received while sacking Amritsar, which had festered and slowly was eating away at his face. His doctors were unable to stop the progression and instead had a silver nose created for him, which is badass, of course, but I'd probably rather have my actual nose. The origins of this face-eating wound are really debated. Some sources claim it's from the cut that he got at Amritsar, others say it's from cancer, and others just don't mention it at all. Whatever the case, Ahmad Shah had not built his empire solely for it to fall apart as soon as he died and began finalising his successor. The obvious choice would be Tamil Shah, the favoured son who had some military and governing experience in the Punjab. However, we haven't mentioned he had another son, a firstborn too. Suleiman Mirza was his name and he was rightfully unhappy about the state of inheritance. Ahmad Shah stated that despite it being custom, Tamil Shah was, quote, indefinitely more capable of governing than his brother describing Suleiman as violent without clemency and stating that he had not won the hearts of the Afghan tribes, unlike his brother. With his necrotic facial wounds spreading horribly by the day, the once charismatic Pearl of Pearls now relied on his aides to translate his slurred gurgles into commands, and eventually, as the wound ate further and further into the back of his throat, he lost the use of his voice entirely, forcing him to write every command. One source says that the rotting flesh at the back of his throat was so severe that maggots would periodically drop from the top of his throat cavity into any food or liquid he was swallowing. Perhaps, mercifully, Ahmad Shah Durrani died soon after. Prince Tamor, careful to ensure the succession was smooth, had his father's escort secretly moved to Kandahar, where he still rests to this very day. An easy criticism of Ahmad Shah is to say that he rode on the coattails of Nader Shah. I suppose this is true in the case of the Mughals. Nader Shah had kicked open the door of a rotten house, but with the independent ethnic groups that would cause Ahmad Shah so much trouble, the Sikhs, the Rajput and the Marathis, this was completely uncharted territory. There was no playbook for this. Nader Shah never had to fight these continual guerrilla insurrections in the same way Ahmad Shah Durrani did. He also didn't have to unify a historically not unified nation. While, yes, Nader Shah levied Afghan troops, he had no intention or need to unite them. In fact, it was better they were divided. 
but the region of Persia had been unified off and on since the times of Alexander and Darius or even before. There was a tradition of paying taxes, contributing men for the army and accepting losses with victories. Ahmed Shah had a much more fickle and decentralised people to try and accommodate. With each victory, he had to ensure the loot flowed freely and with each loss, almost without fail, an insurrection started. There's many differences between the reign of Ahmed Shah and Nader Shah, so I don't think overall it's a fair comparison. In the same vein as Skanderbeg did for Albania, Ahmed Shah united a very decentralised people, giving them a sense of pride for not being Pashtun or Tajik or Uzbek, but an Afghan. While, yes, their old ethnic identity persisted, to achieve any form of unification in a single generation is a monumental feat, and this was his greatest accomplishment. For the Pearl of Pearls, patriotism bound him to his land and spirituality bound him to his people. We didn't get into it, but Ahmad Shah was also concerned for the plight of Muslims in China and reached out to the Chinese Qing dynasty many times around their proposed plan to subjugate Muslims on his northern border. While this never amounted to anything like an invasion of China, it proves both his devotion to his faith and the flexibility of his plans in regard to expansion. His spirituality extended to his interaction with others, and many reaped the rewards of this. Nader's troublesome grandson Sharok comes to mind most prominently, but also the non-Pashtun Afghans whose career options opened up under his leadership. And today I'll leave you with a poem that the Pearl of Pearls himself wrote. It's about the beauty he saw in his homeland in a united Afghanistan, which seems particularly heartfelt, especially considering what's happening right now in Afghanistan. By blood, we are immersed in love with you. The youth lose their heads for your sake. I come to you and my heart finds rest. Away from you, grief clings to my heart like a snake. I forget the throne of Delhi when I remember the mountaintops of my Afghan land. If I must choose between you and the world, I shall not hesitate to claim your barren deserts as my own. Thanks again for tuning into Anthology of Heroes. If you'd like to hear more about the kind of legacy Ahmed Shah Durrani left behind, I was lucky enough to sit down and have a chat with a distant relative of his. You can find that episode among all our others for the show, and I'll also be adding it as a link in the show notes to this one. Thanks a lot, and have a good day. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Hello everyone, 
My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.